0: If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at infodenverchurch.org. At to get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching.
1: Well, good morning. Good to see all of you on this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, If you'd like to follow along with our reading this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. There is a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you, and uh, well, Genesis 1 is on page 1. And I don't know why I love saying that so much, but I do. (laughs) So during uh, the season of Advent, over the next four weeks, uh, we're gonna talk about the shadows that we find around this sacred season. Because even though Advent and Christmas are often associated with light, what we recognize is that light casts shadows. And so we wanna ask the question, what do the shadows, what is the darkness, what does that have to teach us during this season that is associated with light? I'll begin reading in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you know these are somewhat familiar verses. I mean, after all, we seem to remember the beginning of something, and yet we can come to these and be familiar with them, so familiar, in fact, we just almost stop asking questions about them, but what I find fascinating about these few verses at the beginning is all kinds of questions that people have been asking for thousands and thousands of years about these words. One of the questions that I came across that was surprising to me was, what is the first thing God creates? And it seems like a trick question because you're like, you just read that on the first day God said, let there be light and there was light. And so many people, when they hear the question, what's the first thing God creates? They would say, light. But that then brings up another question. Well, where does the darkness come from? Because the poem actually begins in Genesis chapter 1 talking about there being darkness and deep and chaos, or more literally, wild and waste. And the Spirit of God is found there in the darkness. So, where does the darkness come from? Now, oftentimes we'll kind of not think about that because darkness is not normally associated with the divine, it's not normally associated with God. And so we just assume it was, I don't know, there, or it came from somewhere else, or it was in opposition to what God wanted to do. But here's what's really interesting. The prophet Isaiah, in speaking for God as though God is speaking to the people, says this on behalf of God, I form the light and create darkness. That both things then seem to come from the same source. Now, that raises all sorts of new questions for us, questions that we'll deal with on a different day later in our time together during Advent, but what it does point to is that both of these things from the earliest words of Scripture have their place, and they both come from the same source. And actually, what we witness in the creation poem is an interaction between light and dark, not opposition, but some sort of cooperation. And there's darkness that exists, and God speaks into it, and there's light. But God doesn't just speak light into existence or create light. God also separates the light from the darkness, as though somehow there was some sort of mixture that existed before. But God doesn't just create, and God doesn't just separate. God also names. It says he calls the darkness night and the light he called day. And then it says, and then there was evening and morning, the first day. That what we see is some sort of like synergistic relationship between light and dark. One shows up and the other goes. And what it does is it allows the narrator of this poem to really build the framework of the entire poem off of light and dark, day and night, morning and evening, And with these things named now, what we see is that the hook, the poem, the rhythm, the stanzas of Genesis chapter 1 are built off days. Day 1, day 2, day 3. Which is to say that the entire creation poem is built around time. Because a day is simply a measurement of time. But the days were not in existence. They couldn't measure a day before the light was separated from the darkness because they needed some way to measure the time. They needed some sort of marker in time that told them when it was. And so when we come to these words and we see the Spirit hovering over the darkness and we see God speak, it's not just that light comes into existence and is separated from darkness, but in some ways time itself also begins at that moment. Now, this might not seem like the biggest insight or the deepest insight, and I say that because we're so familiar with time. Maybe this is why many of us have never stopped and recognized that time is somehow built into this poem. I mean, we live every single day in relationship to time. Even as I stand here and preach and you all look this way, I look that way and I see a countdown clock that turns yellow and then eventually red, which feels a little bit threatening. I don't know who designed that, but I get it. I'll make sure that I stay within the time. We talk about like having a good time or we talk about how time flies or what I hear from so many people, I have no time. If you're on a road trip, you're driving somewhere, you talk about making good time. And we live our life according to clocks and hours and minutes. We want to make sure that we're not late, which is why a few of you show up by 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. (laughs) Some of you are like, why is that funny? Don't you start at (laughs) 10.15? I actually feel bad for you when I say that. Not because it might be embarrassing, but we actually have an omelet bar and bottomless mimosas from 9.30 to 9.55 every morning. (laughs) And most of the time, it's just the staff that eats it, which is why we're all in such good moods by the time you show up. Uh, You thought it was the spirit. It's a spirit, but it's... uh... (laughs) Yeah, we live according to time. We're familiar with it. Everything that we do, we're in the midst of it. And while we have devices now that can tell us what time it is, The reality is we still don't know what time itself is. If I were to ask you, what is time? One of you would be like, time is money. No, it's not. I appreciate the humor. What is time? The thing that we live in the flow of every single day of our lives. The thing that we're intimately familiar with. What is it? If you're sitting here going, oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Well, the good news is you're in good company because the brightest minds in our world actually don't know the answer to that question either. The physicist Jana Levin says this in response to the idea of what is time. She's like, we'd like to quarter, corner time as a thing, but it defies that completely by being momentary, by having only definitions that harken back to the notion of time itself, Time is the thing that everyone knows intimately until you ask them to tell you about it. This is a very fancy way of going, oh. (laughs) Alan Guth, another physicist, in talking about what is time, says this. What is time? It's really the $64,000 question to physics. Nice 80's game show reference there, Alan. There's basically no aspect of time which I feel we really fully understand. What is time? we don't actually know. We're familiar with it. We live in the flow of it. We feel like the flow is always in one direction. The the best science in our world, the, the, the most exacting clocks tell us it's consistent, but we don't know what it is. But here's what I think is even more bizarre. While we don't know what time is, we have people in our world that are still researching it and studying it and trying to explain it. For example, physics would tell us that there is no past, present, or future, but that all of time currently exists right now, and it's not necessarily moving forward, which they call the arrow of time. That's an illusion, according to a fellow named Albert Einstein. Because it all exists, which means, theoretically, we should be able to move back and forth in time. And so then they begin asking questions, well, if the math is telling us that science is not moving in one direction, then why do we always experience time as a consistent flow in one direction? And there's all sorts of theories and equations around that, which still seem to lead them to a place of going, "We, we really don't know. Science has discovered that time is actually not consistent, that if I'm moving, time moves slower. If I'm standing still, time speeds up. So when you drove here this morning or walked here this morning or rode your bike here this morning, time was actually moving slower. But every time you hit every single red light on your way down 16th, time sped up. And that's not the only thing that affects the passage of time. If you live on the 39th floor of an apartment building, there is less gravity, which means time moves a little bit faster than someone who's on the sidewalk below your 39th floor window. Also, it could mean that you could jump just a little bit higher because there's less gravity, which for someone like me, I'll take anything I can get. So you have science that's like, has all these theories and explorations about time, and they can talk about it endlessly. But what's so fascinating is the thing that they're studying remains elusive. And they say, we don't know what it is. We can only talk about it. We can only experience it. But they also recognize The only way to experience it is if you have some sort of marker in time. Because without the marker, you wouldn't experience time at all. One scientist talked about this and said, if there was no way to tell time, if there was no markers, if there was no rhythms, we would have no understanding or experience of time's existence at all. And what I find fascinating is that the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, in interacting with Genesis chapter 1, said the same thing thousands of years before physicists said. They said, hours become blank when there is no significance tied to them. In other words, time would be passing us by and we would be sitting there having no idea that it exists whatsoever. This is why you have light in dark as the first marker that gives us an experience of time. But according to the creation poem, it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 14 in Genesis chapter one. God creates light on day one. Four days later, God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times or seasons and let them serve to mark days see, for the ancient people, the way that they would mark time beyond just day and night is they would look into the sky long before there was all sorts of light pollution, and they would notice that there was this celestial sphere, and at some point, it would first appear, and it would look like, as my kids used to say, the sliver of a fingernail. And then it would grow in one direction, and then it would disappear. And after a while, they began going, I think that happens about every day." 28 days because someone was counting. Other people began to look at the stars and they began to notice patterns in the stars and they actually began to associate certain animals with the stars and they would notice that in some seasons these stars would be here but the other stars would be gone and then at some point there would be new stars in the sky but the stars that they saw months before were now gone. And they began to notice that it wasn't just light and dark that served as a marker. There was also the moon, and there was also the stars, and there were all sorts of things that allowed them to mark time and recognize that something is happening, that there is a passage of something, that there is a flow to something, And over time, humans got more and more and more exact about how they wanted to measure this time because they realized that was their only way of interacting with it. And the way of interacting it was creating markers. And they knew about markers because markers had already been baked into the universe. Researchers tell us that it was about 5,000 years ago that human beings began to measure time more specifically than the days, and they began measuring the hours and they attribute that to the Babylonians. They attribute it to the Egyptians, that they started with sundials. And they agree that the way they knew how to mark time, specifically with the sundial, was based on the fact that they recognized there was a pattern to the dark and the light, to the night and the day, to the evening in the morning. And without those markers, there would be no experience of time. Now, you might be wondering, like, okay, why are we talking about time so much? Why do we even care? Why does it matter? Why is it featured in the creation poem? Why is it featured in the Jewish cosmology? Well, one idea is it's because that time itself is, in the words of one rabbi, eternity in disguise, that somehow we as human beings know something bigger is out there and that time is kind of this window into this larger world. This is why human beings, even beginning 5,000 years ago, thought day and night are not enough. We need to begin measuring hours. Whatever these markers are that are waking us up to this flow that we stand within, there's something within that flow. There's something within this experience of the mysterious that matters and that is important. The Hebrew word for holy is kadosh. Say kadosh. Say it with some chutzpah. It's another Hebrew word. That's actually Yiddish, but chutzpah. Kadosh. See, now you've learned two words today. That way, if you leave and you're like, that sermon was rubbish, at least you can leave saying, hey, at least I learned something, a new word or two, you're welcome. Kadosh, the Hebrew word kadosh. What's interesting is the first time the Hebrew word kadosh is used in all of Hebrew scriptures is at the very end of the creation poem. And God makes something holy. In fact, it's the only thing in the entire creation poem that God makes holy. And I'll give you a hint it's not human beings. In Genesis 2, verse 2, it says, By the seventh day, God had finished all of his created work, and he rested on that day, and he made the Sabbath holy because on it he rested from his work. Abraham Joshua Heschel, talking about this, says these words. It is indeed a unique occasion at which the first distinguished word kadosh is used for the first time in the book of Genesis, at the end of the story of creation. How extremely significant is the fact that it is applied to time, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. There is no reference in the record of creation to any object in the material world that would be endowed with the quality of holiness. Heschel argues the only thing that was made holy is time. And Judaism, as he says, is a religion of time, of the sacred. This is why when you read through the creation poem, when you read through the Hebrew scriptures, you see them marking time nonstop. Because if we don't have the ability to mark time, we have no experience of it. Or we might say it this way. If we have no ability to mark time, we experience further separation from the sacred, from the holy. This is what the ancient rabbis were talking about. And again, here's what's so fascinating. Modern scientists are saying, "Yep, they're right. Because there's one theory about the universe that in about 100 billion years, All we will be left with are black holes, that black holes will dominate the cosmos, but eventually they too will eat themselves up and they'll evaporate and there will be nothing left in the universe except random particles floating about. And one scientist talking about this says, yeah, when that happens, there will be no more time. Time will in fact lose its meaning because there will be no markers anymore for us anywhere. We need the markers To mark time so we can experience it, so we can experience the sacred. And and I think something within us, like we unconsciously seem to be fully aware of this. Maybe all we're doing this morning is bringing it to consciousness. And I say that because in some of the work that I do as a coach, I, I often ask people to tell me their story. And I don't give them any prompts. And every time I ask someone to tell me their story, they always start at the beginning. They'll start with where they were born and their family of origin. But then really quickly, they begin telling me about moments. When I was six years old, my parents split up. When I was 11, there was this time with my brother when we were. At this particular age, I was in college and... When I got my first job, I was this age. I find it fascinating that when I ask someone to tell me their story, they almost always do it chronologically, and what they do is they talk about moments in time that change their lives. I don't hear them talking about things. When I say, tell me your story, they're not like, oh man, I had this boat. They're not like, okay, so I had this car, and you have to understand, It's interesting, when I ask people to tell me their story, they don't assign significance to things. And even if they do talk about a car that they bought, they'll talk about when they bought it. That somehow we connect these sacred moments in our lives to time. Like if I were to tell you my story, I would talk about one of the significant things that I remember was when my family moved from New York to Michigan, And I would tell you, I was age 13. It was right at the beginning of middle school, which is not an awkward time in anyone's life, so it's a great time to uproot everything and move to a place you've never been. I would tell you about the first time in first period science class when I was 16, the first time I made eye contact with my wife, and how Ario Speedwagon started playing in the background, (laughs) and we instantly fell in love, and I've had a torrid love affair ever since that moment. She would tell you a different story, it's not true. What I'm telling you is 100% true. <laughs> I would tell you about April 21st, 2003 at 6:25 a.m. when the sunrise and the sunlight began, began coming through the blinds of a hospital room and for the first time I held my son. Why do we connect our lives to moments? Because maybe time is eternity in disguise. Maybe that's why we'll say things like, I never wanted that moment to end. That's the language of eternity. Maybe it's because we know there are moments that seem to kind of tear the veil between what feels temporary and what feels eternal. And that veil that it kind of breaks open is time itself. Maybe this is why time is a mystery. Now, some of you are sitting here, you're going, Okay, didn't you say something about Advent? At the very beginning of your talk, like, I I remember, like, four weeks or whatever, and now we've just been talking about time. I I thought we were talking about Christmas, you know, like Jesus and Mary and Joseph and die hard, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) Well, the reason we're talking about time is because we're talking about markers, and we're talking about dark and light and their interplay and how they allow us to experience time And Advent actually is one of those markers. Advent, like all religious feasts and festivals and seasons, is a way for us to say, let's let's put a marker down here so that we can acknowledge the time, the moment, the sacred season we are in together. Advent is the name of that moment before we gather together to celebrate the arrival of our King who came in naked vulnerability as an infant and put on flesh and dwelled among us. That if we didn't have time, if we didn't have a marker that pointed us toward it, we might just run right into Christmas Day and be like, oh yeah, I forgot to get you a present. And oftentimes I think that's what we do. Like, let's be honest about how busy December often is. I mean, some of us travel back to see family before Christmas Day because we don't want to travel on Christmas Day. We fill our schedules up with parties. Then there's often the shopping, and then you have to wrap the presents that you buy. I don't. I just put them in bags with tissue paper, and no one ever complains. Big time saver, just an FYI. But how busy do we get? It's like we run downhill, gaining speed the whole way, only to faceplant into Christmas Day, And it's almost like we lose, well, we lose the sacredness of it. But Advent is the season that says, wait, wait, he's coming. Wait, he'll be here again. Wait and speak the words of hope. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And what I find fascinating about Advent, at least for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, is that it actually begins when the days are getting darker. That as we move toward this sacred day, the days grow darker and darker and darker and shorter until we come to the winter equinox, the shortest day of the year. And not only does Advent begin as the days are shorter, it's actually when the church calendar begins for the annual year. That somehow we, we took our wisdom from Genesis that the days begin in the dark, that the seasons begin in the dark and they move toward light and it gives us this ability, this marker, to interact with the time, to interact with the season, to interact with the with the sacred and have an experience of it that otherwise we would miss. And it teaches us that just as the prophet said, darkness and light come from the same source and both belong to God. You see, one thing I know about Advent, one thing I know about Christmas is that unlike other holidays, this has the power to stir something up within us has the power to stir up unpleasant memories. has the power to pull out circumstances that we'd rather not acknowledge. That it has the power to do something within us, to create a feeling within us that we might refer to as darkness. But what I can tell you is this. Even in what we might want to call the darkest moments of my life, What I've experienced is that God is there, too, right alongside me. That if I were to tell you my entire life story, I wouldn't just talk about all of the wonderful moments. I would talk to you about many moments that were hard and that were painful and that were heartbreaking. But I can also tell you that even in the midst of those moments, times when I've yelled at God, where are you? But in the midst of those moments, those two serve as markers to remind me of the existence of the sacred, that God is here with me. And I don't know where you are as you come in to Advent this morning. You might be carrying all sorts of things into the Christmas season, and Because of whatever weird relationship we seem to have with it and how it seems to make our pain worse, you might just want to get through Advent and into 2024. You might be here this morning thinking to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to feel on Christmas Day, but I'm telling you what, I don't think Mary is one of the words I'll give to explain how I feel about this Christmas. But the good news is Advent, this marker, this season in which the days draw shorter and shorter, the time in which we measure it by darkness, teaches us that God is still with us, that we live in the midst of the sacredness and that as we enter this season together, where we measure time so that we can observe and recognize the sacred, perhaps that will be what reminds us we still can speak with hope and say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I'm reminded of the words of the psalmist, where can we go from your presence? If we ascend to the heights, you are there. If we go into the depths, you are there. Even darkness cannot hide me from you. We thank you for these moments, these seasons that have been baked into the universe from the moment it burst into existence. These things given us to remind us that we live in the midst of the sacred, that we live according to its flow, that all around us is eternity in disguise, if only we had eyes to see. We thank you for moments, markers like Advent, which tune our ears more fully to the sacred. May we, during this time, during this marker, during this season, Be those who allow our hearts and our minds to be tuned more fully to you. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said, amen. As we continue our time together, we're going to participate in Eucharist. As we do every week. And if you've been here before, you know we say this is not our table, this is not our bread, this is not our wine. No, this is the table of Jesus. It's Jesus' body, it's Jesus' blood. Which in imitation of him is why we say anyone who is hungry or thirsty can come. To be reminded that this is the body of Christ broken for you and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. We do these things together in remembrance of Jesus who, according to the gospel of Matthew, on the night he was betrayed, we learn this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we have two stations right here up front. We have two over on the side. And as you're ready, we invite you to come down the center aisle for these two or come down the far sides for the ones on the uh, next to the wall, and then you can go back to your seat using the diagonal aisles. Come when you're ready.